Hello, listeners. I'm Mike Lanspa, Web Director for the ATS Critical Care Assembly. Thanks for listening in. I'm joined today by Dr. Kalpalatha Guntapalli, Professor of Medicine at Baylor College of Medicine and Chief of Pulmonary at Bentob Hospital at Houston. Uh, Dr. Guntapalli was working in the ICU during Hurricane Harvey, as well as during the evacuation of patients from Bentob Hospital. Uh, first, Dr. Guntapalli, thank you for joining me. Uh, thank you for inviting me to participate. I'd like to start by first getting an idea of whether or not you've been involved in any other types of hurricane or tropical storm emergencies, and if so, how you would compare Hurricane Harvey to the ones preceding it. I moved to Houston from Atlanta uh, about 30 years ago, and as soon as I moved to Houston, before I even joined work, there was a major hurricane, and we had to evacuate to Dallas at that time. And since that time, I've been used to uh, these kind of emergencies. And one of the major emergency was during Tropical Storm Allison in 2001. And one of the area hospitals, Herman Hospital, had to evacuate about 600 patients on stairs because they had lost power. We also participated in Hurricane Katrina in 2005. Um, the difference here is that the Houston itself was not affected. We just took care of the evacuees from uh, New Orleans. About 250,000 of them came to Houston. About 27,000 were in a uh, Astrodome, and we had a 40-bed clinic at that time for several weeks, and the medical school was evacuated as well. So we had medical students at uh, Baylor and UT Fellows and so on. Comparing Hurricane Harvey to the previous ones, it basically, Hurricane Harvey made a landfall in Texas at 130 miles per hour, and the rain that registered was more than 50 inches, which was breaking all records in continental USA, and it was described as one in 1,000 year flood, and there were more than 300 to 400,000 people in Houston area without power. So this, by magnitude, it was a major, um, major hurricane. That sounds pretty impressive. Can you tell our listeners what sort of hospital you practice in? Houston is the third largest city in the country, and the Texas Medical Center is the largest complex in the world. It sits on 1,200 acres of land with 22 institutions, two medical schools, 14 hospitals, and about 105,000 employees come to Texas Medical Center every day. And the underground utility facilities are described to be as compact as in Manhattan. If uh, Texas Medical Center, where a city, it would probably be the 18th or 20th largest in U.S. So it's a huge complex, the number one employer in the city. Bentob itself is one of the institutions, and it is a 560-bed safety net hospital for the Harris County residents, about 900,000 of them. It is one of the two level one trauma centers for the entire city of Houston. Interestingly, both trauma centers sit next to each other. So anything that affects the medical center would affect both of these. It's a pretty uh, important institution for both for teaching and trauma care and uh, and a safety net hospital as well. Were there any lessons that you had learned from prior emergencies and tropical storms that helped prepare you or prepare your ICU for the hurricane? One of the tropical storms I described in 2001, which did a major damage to the medical center, uh, after that... Um, Many hospitals and the medical center institutions spent billions of dollars to be prepared, for example, moving the generators out of the basement, and also floodgates were built overground to keep the water out, 
and also a lot of hospitals are connected underground so there are submarine doors that will uh, stop traffic from going to one hospital to another which is very uh, dangerous because it can be flooded and also keeps the uh, water out so in the medical center in houston area we're kind of expecting these and we try to prepare and improve after each emergency that happens i was uh, part of the rita and ike um, teams uh, at my hospital uh, we at that time brought in two sets of crews one would rest and one would actually work and at that time most of the hospitals allowed families also to come in so you know at least the person who's working would have the peace of mind this time around most of the hospitals did not allow the family so it's just the person who's working that was in the hospital because then you have to provide you know you have to take care of them place to sleep food and so on Can you try to paint me a picture and describe what the hospital was like building up to the storm? How bad was the flooding? Um the bl- the flooding is was pretty bad. Uh I would say one of the worst I have seen uh in these 30 years. And we had meetings prior to the hurricane actually affecting Houston, so we had several meetings. You know, patients who could be discharged were discharged, so we were not overloaded with patients that don't need to be there. Uh, the plans were made that if a patient got better during this flood time but didn't have a place to go we would still keep the patient and we tried to kind of uh, thin the hospital as much as we could preparing for the for this disaster uh, again many hospitals had um, prepared to have food for about a week for both the uh, employees as well as the patients and obviously elective surgery was canceled no outpatient clinics uh, were held uh, electively they were all canceled and rescheduled we have in each hospital what we call ride out teams two sets would come in and one would be working for 12 hours while the other is actually made to rest uh, for example in the icu the icu waiting room was the resting respite place for nurses and where we would have a number of cots that they would sleep so these are the type of preparations that were made it sounds fortunate that you guys had the ability to at least anticipate some of the problems that would uh, occur i had heard about staffers getting trapped at work and limitations with uh, food delivery uh, how did people actually get in and out of the hospital once the flooding had started uh, at one point we you know we had some of the nurses who Uh, thought they could go home and they uh, never made it home their cars got stranded and somebody had to rescue them and take them home people who had to come in couldn't come in so we have uh, one rule that the ride out cr- uh, crews we usually unless the person who's relieving you is in the building and you shake hands with that person we we don't let the person go home so even if somebody has to stay longer because nobody could come in to replace that person uh, at least you have somebody in the hospital so one of my partners for example i worked the night and she was supposed to come and relieve me in the morning so i could rest and she was only like a block from where i was at another hospital as i mentioned all the hospitals are walking distance uh, the two main streets that run through the medical center are main and fanning street both of them were flooded she could not get out of that hospital to come uh to our hospital uh for almost 12 hours um in the end i ended up sending um one of the chief residents who had a high truck just to go and bring her because i was already there for 24 hours so i could i could rest and she could uh, help me out 
one of our faculty, uh, the main Flannan Street got flooded and he was trying to get to work and it was, um, the water was rising and the car stalled and he had to break the window of the uh, window glass of the car and he swam through to get to work. So we have several stories like that. I'd like to point out that comment you made earlier where you said this storm exceeded anything else that had ever happened and it challenged any plan that the Disaster Advisory Council had ever anticipated. Can you tell me a little bit about the actual evacuation? Can you tell us what sort of processes were in place and how involved you and the ICU staff were with discussions about the evacuation? Yeah, as I mentioned, we would have every day 8 a.m., 8 p.m. debriefing with uh, most of the people, like 30, 40 people including police and, you know, everybody in the um, in the administration command and control center. And uh, um, we had a flood in the basement where pharmacy and nutrition services are located. So, in fact, within minutes, many people rushed downstairs to rescue all the pharmacy and as much food as possible. And the pharmacy was temporarily moved to the fourth floor. So some of these things we don't anticipate and we just have to respond. So every pair of hands that could run and retrieve uh, did that. Um, and uh, so a plan was made that uh, if we cannot control the flooding, which we ended up controlling later on, that we would evacuate and uh, especially the uh, ICU patients. So we were uh, preparing list every day and maybe um, updating it depending on the condition of the patient uh, and submitting it to the administration, which of course would submit to the other uh, agencies that kind of coordinate uh, where the patients would go and where you have um, a space for these uh, patients to be transferred. We were told to prepare to transfer everybody, but in the end, I think we just ended up transferring maybe four patients out of the hospital because some of the hospitals in the area that actually in Beaumont that were maybe going to take our patients, since the hurricane changed its course, they got flooded and they transferred a lot of their patients actually out. So it was kind of a moving target and we had to be prepared. And another thing that is uh, that happens is when you're trying to transfer these patients, depending on which hospital they're being transferred to, um, when we make a list, we have to say, are they on dialysis, are they on a ventilator, are they on chemotherapy? And some of these require specialist services. For example, some patients could not go because there was no pulmonologist at that hospital. So, or there was no surgeon at that hospital. Some of these trauma patients couldn't go there. So I think they ended up transferring more stable patients in the end. Uh, and, um, you know, I had a patient with the very low platelets that needed a lot of platelet transfusion. And, you know, unless other hospital has a supply, there was no point in transferring them. Or if they didn't have an oncologist or if they didn't have other kind of specialists, it was hard, uh, you know. It was difficult to, to prioritize depending on the sickness of the patient as well as the ability of the other receiving hospital to care for these patients. So it sounds like rather than having a strict set of rules, each decision was basically made on a case-by-case -case basis? Case-by-case -case basis, and it would change like hour by hour. Um, you know, can the hospitals, uh, can the ambulances actually uh, come to get the patients? Can they get out to the other, other hospital? And so many other factors. You know, sometimes two patients were returned back because they, were never, they could never reach the other hospital. 
What tips would you have having now gone through this for any other healthcare workers that might have to do any sort of work during an emergency like this? Some rules that we sent out, obviously this was uh, in uh, August. So a lot of a lot of the house staff were new, fellows were new, some of the faculty were new. So we basically sent out uh, an email because some of them were underestimating what uh, would happen and they were kind of taking it easy. So we sent out an email to uh, to our staff and, you know, uh, house staff that um, just take care of self and family welfare should be first. Talk up on all the, like, water and, you know, canned food and things like that. And do not challenge the nature um, because sometimes they try to, you know, drive through um, water and so on. And many of our fellows and faculty did get flooded and some were actually in the mandatorily evacuated uh, uh, areas on the third day um, because they were doing some controlled release of two water reservoirs. At least I would say um, half of them lost power, some even lost water. So we say that may be prepared. So that's for the family. And as far as when they are coming to work, this is something I was giving uh, tips to the residents who were there already. It's, it's a marathon, not a sprint. So we tell them that it's about endurance and it's not a point performance. And sleep is very important. And as you know, uh, studies show that 16 hours of continuous working without sleep, you can your performance could be equal to somebody who's legally drunk. So to keep your head straight and body healthy, you have to eat and you have to sleep. And sometimes when they have company of so many people, um, people get excited. The residents get excited and they don't sleep in their off time. So you can have sleep deprivation, can have errors of omission and commission. And uh, another tip is work needs to be coordinated and can be in silos. For example, if they're transferring a patient on a ventilator, they have to talk to both respiratory therapy and the physician and the nurse, not to one group or the other, because the information needs to be coordinated for the best care of the patient. I think your point about sleep is an excellent point. I can easily imagine that people could easily lose themselves in something like this and not uh, take care of the simple basic needs. I'd like to talk about maybe the human perspective as far as how these sorts of disasters or emergencies can affect people around you. Uh, could you describe some of that as far as what, what you've experienced or people around you may have experienced uh, from a personal standpoint? Yeah, we have a, a faculty of 47 in our group and uh, another 30 fellows and, you know, several employees. I would say uh, many of them lost power for at least a brief period of time. We lost power in my house, I think, for 30 hours several of them for extended periods of time. I would say at least 25 people that I personally know uh, have lost their cars, like my assistant. I mean, how are they supposed to get to work? Another faculty member had just delivered um, her child, and while she was in the hospital, her house got flooded, so she couldn't go home. That they had nursery and everything set up, she went to her sister's house. In my house, we had we were hosting two families, uh, for about 10 days, because even their houses got flooded. Both families were young with small children. And when one one of them went to clean the house like the next day to take pictures for insurance and so on and, and retrieve whatever they can, uh, there were like three snakes uh, in the house. So some of these things that probably don't uh, make it to the press or people don't understand, um, and the stench of when you go back into the house, 
uh, how bad it gets because of the water damage. For example, one of our fellows' uh, apartment complex got flooded. There was no power or water. She had a small child. So they were filling uh, their bathtubs with swimming pool water, just bring it in buckets and filling the swimming pool water to use for toilet, um, you know, and so on. So some of these things are important um, aspects that uh, we kind of uh, take it for granted. And on the Wednesday after the flood, I was uh, in the elevator and I somebody was sitting was standing in the elevator and I just asked him, "Were you affected by the by the flood? How are you doing?" And and uh, this man said, "You know, my house was okay, but I was at work and he works in an aquarium, so he was at work all the time." the county courthouse i think will be closed for months because they got flooded so bad i think this affects everybody what about as far as with the limited resources that were imposed by the storm whether or not you had to limit care or feel that you had to limit care services in the icu and if so what sort of challenges or dilemmas did you face as an intensivist um actually i would say we did not limit any of the care but uh, one of the things how you cooperate with each other is that the emergency room was not busy because no ambulances were coming in or out or we were actually on a shutdown uh, mode. Um, so they were well-staffed. They had a lot of nurses and a lot of faculty, um, and they were well-staffed. So, for example, if a patient from the floor needed dialysis and the dialysis center was closed, they would take them to the ER and they would help us out instead of coming to the uh, ICU. So that way we cooperated uh, with each other. All of the teams, like the trauma surgeons, if, uh, for example, the some of the services couldn't get in, but we had like dialysis nurses so we could manage and something like infectious disease consults we could do on the phone um, and so on. So I think the interventional radiology was there. So we found ways to cooperate with each other to deliver, you know, similar level of care. And uh, I was very pleased that, you know, all our sister hospitals everywhere, uh, we feel that the care really didn't miss a beat and uh, we didn't, you know, cause any less than normal service. And as Murphy's Law would have have it, at least in our ICU, it was busiest four days, I would say, than even if it was not flood. You know, so we really, it was in a way nice that a lot of staff was in the hospital and we could get to the patients very quickly. Well, that sounds very fortunate that you were able to provide the sort of care that you wanted. What's the aftermath here? How's the Houston community affected, and how are they coping with with all of this? This is um, actually very um, heart-wrenching. When I drive through the streets, even on my own street, I've been very fortunate. Nothing happened to my house or household. And I see even on my street on both sides, the sheetrock that's been uh, cut and removed, the carpets are there, the wooden floors are there that were taken out, the debris, the furniture, the sofas. On both sides of the street in front of the houses, it's really so sad. Some people are sitting outside on the sofas and making calls and having coffee, etc., because there's nothing in the house. They had to take everything out. Uh, people have been helping each other. It's amazing how the community drew together. And actually, the neighbors uh, of those who were fortunate, whose houses were not flooded, they just showed up and helped. So it's amazing how people are helping each other. Uh, one of my friends was kind of running a laundry service continuously because there were so many people affected and, and another family was just cooking food for everybody. So I think 
it's uh, it's amazing how uh, the community got together and still they're trying to cope. Even today, we still have evacuees in uh, NRG Stadium and George Orrin Brown Convention Center, about 15,000 of them. And uh, the medical schools, the community, Harris County Medical Society, uh, they're all volunteering to take care of these uh, patients in a 20-bed facility. There are two or three located within these um, uh, convention centers. I think that all of our listeners are quite glad that you're okay and Bentop Hospital is able to get through this disaster without too much trouble. We're running out of time, so I think this is going to conclude the ATS Critical Care Podcast. I'd like to thank our guest, Dr. Guntapali. If you're interested in donating for the hurricane relief, there are several different charities that you can donate. One place that you can start is to visit the Hurricane Harvey Relief Fund at ghcf.org slash hurricane dash relief. This is Michael Lanspa for the American Thoracic Society Critical Care Assembly. Thank you so much for listening.